through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please the Lord? No, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer. Yes, I am here. He will reply quickly. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. Some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. Then you will be known. Then you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath in keeping everything you do on that day and don't follow your own desires or talk idly. Then the Lord will be your delight. I will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance I promised to your ancestor Jacob. I, the Lord, have spoken. Father God, we thank you for this time that we're going to share together. Uh, I pray that I decrease so that you may increase, Father God. Hide me behind your cross so that the people hear and see you as I speak. Father God, allow the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Everything in life was created for a purpose. Everything that exists was made to function in a manner to achieve a very specific result. For example, forks were created to stab your food and to guide it to your mouth. And shoes were designed to cover your feet as you travel from one place to the other. Spoons were made to gather liquids and gloves to protect your hands and keep them warm. When a created thing is used for its created purpose, an optimal outcome is reached. However, the inverse can be said that disarray can ensue when a created thing is used outside of its purpose. If a fork was used to eat tomato soup, you would struggle to complete your meal. If you use shoes to cover your hands, well then you wouldn't be able to use your hands in the way that you're supposed to use them. Everything 
was made for a purpose. The same principles can apply to created, that can apply to created things, apply to created people. We are provided with items, gifts, talent, strength, and the mental capacity to accomplish any task set before us and fulfill our purpose. But the question I pose to you at the moment is, what happens when a created person misuses a created thing? We end up with a misappropriation of that purpose. For those who don't know me well, I serve vocationally as a middle school administrator, uh, which means that I deal with a lot of middle school kid type challenges. And one day I was sitting in my office getting work done and a couple of students run in and they say, Mr. J, we need you to come to the lockers right away. And I could tell by the serious look on their faces that it was a big deal. So I jump out of my seat and I run with them towards the lockers. Now, assuming that something was wrong with somebody, I asked, is everyone okay? Is anyone hurt? And they said, you just need to see this. For those who don't have little children or engage with them, if they say you just need to see this, it may be something you don't want to see. So I arrive at the lockers to find a group of boys huddled together, whispering to one another. So I ask them what's going on, and they look at each other as if they're afraid to talk to me. And then one of them gathers the nerve to speak. He looks at me, he points to the locker, and he says to me in the shyest voice possible, Michael's in there. <laughs> I said, what? He said, Michael's in the locker. And at first I don't believe that Michael is in the locker. I thought they're messing with me, right? That's what middle school kids do. They always want to make jokes. So I lean to the locker, but I'm thinking, I'm about to look like a fool leaning in this locker and talking to the locker. But I say, Michael? And he says, hey, Mr. J. I could really use some help in here. And Michael wasn't lying, you see, because if you look at the locker, for those of my students in here who know, and those who still remember what a locker looks like, if a locker is stuffed properly, it closes like a door, right? Really smooth. But if something doesn't belong in the locker, like a little corner of it kind of sticks out in a weird way, which prevents you from getting to open the locker back up. Things kind of get jammed up. So I asked the boys, I said, okay, all right, hold on, hold on. I need you to help me understand why is Michael inside the locker? Now, in all fairness, I did call the janitor first, make sure they brought the crowbar, but while he was on the way, I checked on this. I didn't ask all the questions first. We got the help. But while the janitor's on the way with the crowbar, by the way, it's a true story, by the way. Anybody who works for kids, you don't have to make up stories. They give you stories. And I said, so why is Michael in the locker? And they said to me that we had a bet with Michael that nobody could fit inside the locker. Very middle school. <laughs> and he said, to prove a point, Michael volunteered to go inside the locker himself. And as you can see, he managed to fit, but we couldn't get him out. 
Now, what I tried to explain to them is that their understanding of fit was incorrect. Michael actually didn't fit in the locker because if he did, the door would have closed properly and you could get Michael right back out. Because you see, the purpose of the locker was to hold Michael's books and his school supplies. Michael's purpose was to utilize the books and school supplies in the locker for his education. So what we end up having is a creative person misusing a creative thing and disarray ensues. Brothers and sisters, I stand before you as a fellow member of the body of Christ with God speaking to me about this as well, reminding you that you are here for a created purpose. And that purpose is simple, it's to know God and to make God known. Or as Jesus says in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, when he's confronted by the Pharisees about the greatest commandment, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he makes it clear in John 13 and 35 that by doing so, people will know that we are his disciples. People will know that we are children of God. People will be saved because they will not look to us. They will look to the God in us that directed us to love them selflessly. We were made with a purpose, and that purpose was to live our lives in such a way that people come to know who the real God of the universe is. But brothers and sisters, if I may be so bold with you today, I contend that many of us within the body of Christ are not living out the whole purpose we were created for. And I know that that can be a little uh, triggering to hear me say that, but as I've already told you, I'm also speaking to myself. And if I'm going to make a claim that bold, I would contend that you need to look no further than right around you to see the brokenness that we have in our communities to prove that we are not living out our whole purpose. We have Democrats and Republicans who show up to work every day but can't get anything done because they operate outside of their purpose. We have law enforcement and the community sharing the same city but can't get along because they operate outside of their purpose. People of all backgrounds inhabit the city of Atlanta, but Buckhead is worried about separating from Bankhead because we don't live within our intended purpose. Husbands and wives, parents and children live under the same roof, but struggle to keep it together. Why? Because they're living outside of their intended purpose. Daily, those of us who have walk past those who don't have, and yet the struggle for them continues. Why? Because we choose to not live within our purpose. And everything that I'm naming outside does not exempt us from what's going on right here. We can come to church on Sunday, we can sing a few songs, get a good word, call ourselves family, but somehow there are people who will walk right past us through that parking lot, get in their car, and feel loneliness. Why? Because we're not living out our purpose.
The list could go on and on with examples of brokenness, but what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is that we are wasting our time eating tomato soup with a fork. We're putting gloves on our feet and expecting to get something done. We're misappropriating what we have, and the result in our communities, in our homes, and in our churches is disarray and brokenness all around us. And we can't fix that brokenness around us until we fix the brokenness in our worship. I'm going to say that again, because that's your main point for the day if you need something. You, and you, and you, and you, and I cannot fix the brokenness around us until we fix the brokenness in our worship. And for the purposes of the time, we're going to define worship as an outward expression and manifestation of our love and respect for God. I'll say that one more time because I don't think I gave you a slide for it. It is what it is. We will define worship as an outward expression and manifestation. That means something tangible must be produced that shows our love and respect for God. I'll say that another way. So if you are worshiping God properly in spirit and in truth, if I am worshiping God properly in spirit and in truth, there should be an outward manifestation that's representative of who God is in our lives. If your manifestation does not point somebody to Jesus, then you're actually not worshiping. In Isaiah 58, we see that God takes issue with his people on how they worship. Primarily fasting in this one. The fasting is a form of worship. And the motivations behind their worship. And we're going to see that God calls out his people who are created with a purpose because they're misusing the purposeful things he made for proper worship. Isaiah 58, 1 through 5 reads, Shout it aloud and do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? And why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? I will tell you why I respond. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? In other words, what good is worship if you leave with a beef between your brother and sister? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. Does it get you a little bit somewhere with God? No, it gets you nowhere with God. He's making it, God is drawing the line in the sand. There is no gray area. Either you're worshiping in the spirit of truth or you are not. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is that what you call fasting, do you really think this will please the Lord if you did not pick up on that God as being sarcastic? There's a saying that goes something to the effect of 
you can do all the right things for the wrong reasons. And it implies that your outward actions, which appear selfless on the surface, are ultimately to serve your own gains. For my generational brothers and sisters and the young folks who've seen the old school TV, there's a show called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Not to be confused with Bel-Air, all right? <laughs> so I'm putting that out there. It's the story I'm about to share with you. You're like, I don't remember that. There's not four seasons on Peacock, because I'm talking about the old school one, not the new school, okay? <laughs> so anyway, there's an episode on there titled Father of the Year in season four. And some of you all remember this. It's in this episode, Will gets the impression that the ladies at his university love single fathers. Some of y'all are like, yeah, uh-huh, I remember that. <laughs> so <laughs> operating off this assumption, Will offers to start babysitting his baby cousin, Nikki. Sidebar, anybody notice how Nikki went from a baby in season four to like eight years old in season five? <laughs> Did that bother anybody else but me? Just check, okay, putting that out there, I'm gonna keep it moving. Anyway, so anyway, back to season four, we're still a baby. Will offers to babysit cousin Nikki for a few days. Uh, so during this time, Will is taking Nikki to school with him. He's pretending to be Nikki's father, and he's getting the attention of the young ladies like he planned on doing. But what's unique about this episode, us as the viewer, we have a unique lens, right? So we see that in Will's household, his family views his actions as altruistic, right? But man, this is really sweet, man. He's, he's giving Aunt Viv a relief. He's looking out. You know, we can, we can go have, have a little day-date or something like that while Will's taking baby Nikki. But to us, the viewer, we see the truth behind Will's actions. We know that Will's purpose was never to actually love and serve his family. And what ends up happening <laughs> is Will's scheme gets discovered by the college ladies, and they read him for filth, and they expose his motives. And all of this happened because Will misused his purpose. Will was so focused on the attention that he could get from the women that he missed the opportunity to build with his family. He was worried about what he could get instead of what they could have together. In our passage, God, through Isaiah, calls the people out for their actions. You'll see the Israelites are living in exile at this point. They had just finished a period of fasting. They had covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes. They were doing the ritualistic things that say, I am sinful and I, I'm going without. But what's interesting is their response to it. Like if you just saw them and they didn't speak, you ever notice that people, if they talk long enough, you find out who they really are? Yeah. You just kind of let people keep talking? Yeah. So God didn't stop them when they put on the sackcloth and ashes. He didn't stop them when they went through the fasting. He let them keep going. And once they started talking, they showed who they really were. Because their response after the fasting was, God, why don't you hear us? Why don't you notice the good thing that I'm doing? They wanted God to punish their oppressors. They wanted God to notice their spiritual efforts. They couldn't understand why they could not get what they wanted from God. They claimed to have denied themselves before God, but God was not responding. So this was a challenge to God. 
It's one thing to ask God a question. There's nothing to question God. They questioned God. You know by the bravado in their tone. It wasn't like, hey, God, um, you know, we, we're doing you know, the sackcloth thing, and, you know, and we're trying to praise you, and, you know, it's kind of wondering if you're going to talk to us. You know? No. <laughs> it wasn't like that. It was, why aren't you doing what we expect you to do? You told us to do it, so why are we not getting the reward? That's what they were saying. And you know how God going to do. God like, okay, you, you talked long enough. It's my turn. So God responds to their challenge. And here's what he does. He actually, through Isaiah, he lets them know, I see what you're doing. I acknowledge your religious practices, but I'm going to let you know that I know what you did was superficial. Because for the Israelites, what they were doing was more about checking the spiritual boxes, giving the impression their hearts were with God, but in reality, they were far, far from it. So far from it. So here's what's interesting, though, if you noticed when you read. God doesn't condemn the fasting. If you notice, he never said, don't fast. So I need you to stay with me here. What he's getting to is the posture of their heart, not the action. All right, so stay with that. As we listen, do not think the act is wrong. The acts are there for a reason, but it's the posture of the heart that's going to bear whatever fruit that you get from it. Okay? So before we go any further, um, as we get into it, I've some practical steps for fasting. I, we don't have time to do a whole sermon solely on fasting, but I think that we have some slides for you on that. But as you process fasting, for those who have done it a lot or, or maybe you haven't done it much, some things to keep in mind. And I bet we'll find as we explore the Israelites, they didn't do many of these things. First of all, ask yourself what you're fasting for in the first place. If you're doing something for the sake of doing it, well, then you're really doing nothing. Pray before you fast to humble yourself before God, all right? So, all right, Lord, I feel like there's a reason I need to fast, but I also need to pray to you. I need to realize there may be some things in me that are preventing me from having full communion with you. If I want to enter in this space of full communion with you, I may not know all of those things yet that are blocking me, but I want to confess to you there's something there. Get my heart and mind in a position to receive whatever it is you have to say. Then start Thinking about the traits of the Lord, this is something that I think is really great with fasting, whether it's through praise and worship, study of the word, whatever it may find things that remind you of who God is. So as you fast, you're being reminded of God. Okay? And what's going to end up happening is if you do that, oh, choose scriptures as well. I kind of put those together. But make intentional time with God too, okay? If you're going to fast, you can't just... Oh, I got five minutes today at 8 p.m., and tomorrow I can get them at 7.45 on my way to work. Pick an intentional time. You do it when you go on a date. You do it when you meet with anybody else. So pick time to meet and spend with God consistently. And what's going to happen is this. The Holy Spirit's going to start messing with you a little bit. 
and you're going to realize, man, I'm broken. As I meditate on the awesomeness of God, as I sing, as I make time with him, as I've already prayed to God about what it is that I think I'm going to see him for, the Spirit starts to show me it's really me that needs to work. Because I put my focus on God and I realize the awesomeness of God and I am nothing in comparison to that. And then you start to confess. Pray for whoever or whatever God puts on your heart. When you're frustrated, when you're hurt, when you're broken, when you feel jaded, it's very difficult to pray for other people. We did this uh, Wednesday at, at, at prayer for a little while. Whoever we realized we had a problem with, we challenged ourselves to actually pray for that person. So we did that. And then I recommend, I'm a big journaler. I even journal usually when I pray because I'm such a thinker, my thoughts will go everywhere. So I actually journal when I pray. But another benefit of journaling is when you get out of that period of fasting, you can go back and reflect on what God did for you while you went through it. Same thing we do with the Bible. We're just reflecting on other people's remembrances. Make your own stories too in conjunction with the word. Please don't leave thinking I'm saying don't read the Bible. That's not what I said. It's not what I'm saying. But I just wanted to put those out there as we get back to our scheduled program of God responding to the challenge of the Israelites. Understand that fasting, what God was trying to tell them is that fasting requires that a person is so concerned with their own spiritual condition so much that they put their immediate needs aside to hear and positively respond to the commands of God. In this sense, the act of fasting is designed as a process leading to your purification and humbling oneself before God. If you notice, everything we've said so far ain't got nothing to do with you. Fasting and worship has everything to do with who you should be fasting and worshiping to. It's not about you. It's not about me. And the faster that you acknowledge, or the faster should acknowledge, that there is another who's worthy of more attention. And you should leave with knowing that God is worth listening to and obeying. According to Andrew Murray, fasting is letting go of all that is seen and temporal. Fasting helps to express, deepen, and confirm the resolution we are ready to sacrifice anything, even ourselves, to attain what we seek for the kingdom. That's what worship should be. It's about giving God any and everything so that we can know him and so that he can be known. Now, you'll see on the screen a list of different examples of those who have fastened. We don't have time to go through all of them right now. But what you notice, if you look at examples in the Bible, we have, oh, I'll get to that in a second, that's cool. Well, I don't have the examples for you and that's okay. But I can give you some. Know that Moses, when he fasted, he received the Ten Commandments. Esther fasted for the safety of her people. Nehemiah fasted over the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem. Daniel fasted to get clarity from God during a time of oppression. Jesus fasted to withstand the temptations of Satan. With each of the people we named who fasted, they did it as an act of worship to God. 
They did it to lament the marginalization of others. They fasted to hear the commands of God. They fasted so they could serve a purpose greater than themselves. They fasted so that God's glory would be known. They fasted to fulfill their created purpose. What they did not do was fast to lose weight. They did not fast to cleanse their bodies after a really bad weekend of junk food. They did not fast so that God could give them a new job. They did not fast so that God could remove the annoying person from their lives. They did not fast so they could get what they wanted from God. And I don't know about you, but I'll confess about me. There's times when I have been going through something, right? And I decide that I'm going to worship, but I've done it the way the Israelites have. I've started praying a little harder all of a sudden. I start reading a little bit more scripture. All of a sudden, I start singing a little louder in service with the hopes that God was going to fix what I was going through. And because I abused the purpose of my worship, disarray continued in my life. And that's what we're seeing here with the Israelites. God did not respond to their fasting because it was superficial and inauthentic. The fasting of the Israelites didn't lead to humbling. Instead, as we read, it led to self-centeredness. If you're truly worshiping God, how do the eyes get back on you? It led to divisions within their community. They disregarded other people's needs. They literally were exploiting and oppressing workers and avoiding their own family members. Isaiah tells us that these religious activities are a waste of time if they do not result in a life of compassion and justice. Their fasting directly violated the only two commandments that God gave us, and I'll say them again, to love God with all you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. You were made for a purpose. According to Sister, Sister Ruth Okadiji, God is looking for people who will stand in the gap who will refuse to be moved, who will sacrifice food, sacrifice their iPhone, sacrifice their TV, and everything else until what God has said has come to pass. That's what your worship should be. You can't worship and have your iPhone in your hand at the same time. It doesn't work like that. When my wife and I are having a conversation, if she's talking to me and I am scrolling through my phone, I'm communicating to her that I don't value her. My eyes aren't fixed on her. I don't care what really happens with what she's got to say because I'm worried about me. If our worship is not turned directly to God, wholeheartedly giving him everything that we need, then the worship is really about us. Understand that attending worship services and checking the good Christian boxes don't matter if we're not in a deep, intimate relationship with God and his people. God wanted them and us to understand that if our worship does not result in a desire to forsake all things for Christ, then we have misappropriated the purpose of our worship. But this is what I love about God. Sometimes we think Old Testament God, we get stuck in, oh, he's coming at us, coming at us, coming at us. And he does. New Testament God does it too. <laughs> but what's cool about this is that God doesn't leave us in a state of, man, I messed up. God gives us the keys to do it right. And then he tells us the blessing that comes from that. 
In Isaiah 58, 6 and 12, it reads, No, this is the kind of fasting I want to free those who are wrongly imprisoned, to lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. To share your food with the hungry and to give shelter to the homeless, to give clothes to those who need them, and do not hide from relatives who need your help. <laughs> that speaks to some of us who may have family struggles, right? Then your salvation will come like the dawn, and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward, and the glory of God will protect you from behind. Then you will call the, then you, when you call, the Lord will answer, yes, I am here. He will click, quickly reply, remove the heavy yoke of oppression, stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. The Lord will guide you continually, giving you water when you are dry and restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. And some of you will rebuild the deserted ruins of your cities. And you will be known as a rebuilder of walls and a restorer of homes. I am, <laughs> my mom being here is so funny. Um, she'll remember this. Uh, I love the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, or MCU for us real comic book people, you know. Mama, you probably remember, you exposed me to comic books. I actually still have comic books to this day. I, I read them, yes. Um, and X-Men was what she got me into. We'd go and back then, comics like a dollar, dollar 25 cents. Um, so I, have, I still have those same comics. I was just flipping through them the other day. That's funny with you being here. Um, but anyway, with that, there's a signature character known as Steve Rogers or Captain America. And before Captain America was a Six foot two, 240 pound, virtually indestructible and extremely popular superhero. He was a five foot four, 95 pound, pretty sickly and frail man. Uh, he was constantly being rejected by the military because he was seen as unfit to serve. Now, why does that matter? It's because it's going to help us understand the story of Steve Rogers. All Steve ever wanted to do, if you follow his stories, he just wanted to help people. All he ever wanted to do was help people. And the best way he thought he could do that was to enlist in the army in 1943 and fight against the Nazi regime. And despite this passion he had to serve, his size kept him from being in the armed services. He would hop from like doctor to doctor, hoping that maybe the next one would pass him for the physical fitness test, but he kept getting rejected every time. But things changed when he met someone named Dr. Abraham Erskine. Dr. Erskine saw something in Steve, and he enlisted Steve in the military on his own, you know, power because he thought Steve was the perfect fit for a new super soldier program they were initiating. The doctor's counterpart, Colonel Chester Phillips, preferred that they use this serum that was going to make the super soldier on somebody that's already a little bit bigger and stronger, kind of looked the part. And he was convinced that nobody that was 5'4", 95 pounds, like Steve Rogers, could protect anybody. So for the next few days of boot camp, Steve is trying to measure up. He's trying to complete these physical tasks to prove that he has what it takes to be a soldier. But his attempts fail over and over and over. He's always the last one. He's always falling out. He can't get the job done while everybody else keeps moving along. So as the next movie montage part comes up, 
Erskine and Phillips are having this debate about whether Steve is the one that they need. Colonel Phillips is like, yeah, he's too weak and skinny. We need to find somebody else. But Erskine continues to say, no, you're missing the point. He hasn't quit doing the task. He's struggling with them, but he hasn't quit. He's got something that these guys don't have, I promise you. And Captain Phillips just didn't buy the argument, so he said, okay, we'll see what he's about. So he grabs a live grenade, pulls out the pen, and throws it into the mix with everybody else. And if you've seen the movie, you know what happens next. All the soldiers run with the exception of one. Steve, his five-foot-four, 95-pound frail self, runs and jumps on the grenade and tells everybody else, get back, get back, get back, with the hopes that him giving his life would allow everyone else to move forward. And what's so funny about that, right, as we talk about religious practices, that all the routine combat training in the world couldn't develop a selfless heart in those soldiers. They went through routine after routine after routine religiously, and yet and still when the time came to give themselves to somebody else, they tucked tail and ran. All the physical capabilities in the world, they checked all the boxes, but what really mattered, they could not get done. But Steve, on the other hand, tiny and frail and incapable of being able to do the physical task, was willing to give his life. Why? Because he knew his purpose, and his purpose was to ensure that others could live out theirs. When a creative thing or creative person uses a creative thing the right way, optimal performance happens. When a creative person misappropriates a creative thing, disarray ensues. Disarray ensued with the other soldiers. Optimal performance happened with Steve. It's juxtaposed right there in that scene. And this is what God is challenging the Israelites to do when it comes to their fasting and worship. Fasting and following religious rituals will not manipulate God into showing favor. The same way at first Steve could not get the favor of the colonel because he kept trying to do the things he could not do in his own strength. It wasn't until Steve gave a selfless heart that the colonel gave the thumbs up. It isn't until we are willing to break ourselves before God that God says, now I can work with you. That's what God is trying to tell them. And he knows whether or not we are at that point based on the manifestation, as we said before, of our actions. He knew they weren't good because they were oppressing the poor. They were ignoring their own family members. So he said, I know your worship's not right yet. The spirit hasn't got in there yet. It hasn't messed with you yet. You haven't acknowledged your brokenness enough yet. You're still worried about you right now, but you're coming to me. I'm not a genie in a bottle. I'm God. So what he does, he makes it very clear that what legitimate and effective fasting is, is the practice of justice and mercy. And I know it's a weird buzzword for people, but yeah, that includes social justice. The Bible's always said social justice, get over it. Social, the engagement of people. Justice, do what's right by them. It's always been there, get over it. And 
In Luke 19, we see Zacchaeus, an exploitive tax collector, come into direct contact with Jesus. You remember this story? He's probably about five foot four, 95 pounds, hanging out in a tree. And we get that impression because he wasn't tall enough to see over everybody as Jesus came through. Jesus calls him out of the tree and says, I want to hang out with you. Throw something on the grill. Let's sit down and eat. And as Jesus spent time with Zacchaeus in his home, Zacchaeus has a stirring of the heart. And Zacchaeus realizes that he has been sinful and that he is broken. And what does he say after a genuine encounter with Jesus? He says, I'll give half of my wealth to the poor. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. The inward work that Jesus did in Zacchaeus led to an outward manifestation. It led to, in Zacchaeus' case, a restitution. I abused my purpose. I caused broken community. I can't fix fully what happened in the past, but I can work to repair it now. That's what Zacchaeus did. Zacchaeus didn't say, well, hey, man, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just stop cheating people moving forward. No, he went back. You want to talk about the definitions of repentance. That's repentance. To acknowledge, to confess, and then to turn away, literally, moving forward. And brothers and sisters, the same that happened to Zacchaeus should happen to the Israelites. It can happen to us. Understand that when we come into contact, genuine contact with the Lord, we realize our brokenness and our sinfulness. Through worship, when we allow the God of the universe to penetrate the home of our hearts, we will have a move like Zacchaeus, and we will then have awareness of our brokenness. And from awareness, we will go to lament, and then from lament, we'll go to repentance, and from repentance, we'll finally take real action. Because our worship must be connected to a behavior that helps those who are exploited, those who are marginalized, those who are ignored, find freedom. If done with the right heart, fasting and other forms of worship should remind us of the greatness of God and remind ourselves of God's commands. Respond to them attentively and get the work done. In short, true worship means that we must move to seek shalom in our broken community, shalom in our broken households, shalom in our broken church, shalom at your broken workplace with a coworker who gets on your nerves. And we don't need to look at Captain America for inspiration because as we search the word, we'll find one that already has done this. We'll find that we have a savior that was so in tune with the heart of the father that he came down from his position of privilege, lived in social obscurity, engaged with the least of these, and died so that we might live. Brothers and sisters, Jesus embodied what it means to live in true worship to the father. And if we adhere to what God is saying and we worship him in spirit and in truth, remember what the word says will happen. Darkness will be replaced with light. Empty stomachs are fed. People without homes will have a place to lay their heads. The oppressed will experience freedom. Loneliness is replaced with community. What is broken can be fixed. And ultimately, God is known by us 
and in turn, then God is known by others. It always goes back to those two commands. Always does. And for some of you all, you're saying, James, brother, I hear you. I've been trying to do that. I'm giving myself. I'm trying to pour out as best as I can, and I'm feeling weary. Or I really need God to work with me on something before I can do that. But let me just remind you of, of what it says in Isaiah 58, 13 through 14. Or it says, actually, before we get there, he reminds them there's refreshing for their souls, right? I'm going to refresh your souls. That's what he says in uh, 11 and 12. I jumped a little, I got a little excited there, I guess. But in 11 and 12, he promises refreshing for your soul. What God is trying to encourage us is this. You may start your worship thinking about you, but if you just allow the focus to go to God, God's going to direct it to others. And then once you show that to others, then he can minister to you the right way. God said, I never stopped worshiping. I'm not going to not take care of you. But I need you to understand it's never been about you. When have you ever seen me model anything that makes it about you? Nowhere in the pages will you find a self-centered story that ends up well. And that's what he's trying to remind us. So as we close, I told you I'd be the hour. <laughs> oh, no doubt, no doubt. You might ask me to come back now, we'll see. Isaiah 58, 13 through 14 reads, If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, if you honor it by not going your own way, and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the Lord of the mouth has spoken. I would encourage you as we talk about worship in general, yes, we have a day that we count as Sabbath in our culture as Sunday, but I understand that everybody doesn't have the same schedule. So, Think about Sabbath also, not only as maybe a day, if you have that, but if you don't, think about Sabbath as any time you intentionally engage God. So in some cases, you may Sabbath a lot more than you realize, or you have opportunity to Sabbath more than you realize. And when you Sabbath, use it as genuine worship to God. Fix your heart and mind on the things of God. You can even be honest, hey, God, I'm, not, well, I'm coming to you with selfish motives. Fix them for me. It's okay to say that. That's not the worst thing he's going to judge you for. He's not judging you. You're already redeemed, y'all. Just tell him the truth. Be real with him. Ask the Lord to search your heart and see if there's areas of worship that need adjustment. Ask the Lord to renew the right spirit within you so that you as a created person, and fulfill your created purpose. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we come to you in the name of Jesus, just acknowledging that we are <laughs> um, a little broken at times when it comes to our worship. We may not always worship you in spirit and truth as we should, Father God, um, even if our intentions mean well, sometimes they may not get the results that we need or that we think we need. Father God, we just pray that you help us to fix our hearts and minds 
and what it means to truly worship you in spirit and in truth. Uh, move our hearts in such a way that not only do we know you, but that others come to know you, Father God. And that your glory is made known in our homes, in our workplaces, in our city, in our neighborhoods, and wherever we may go. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. ready to um, prepare ourselves for communion. I believe the ushers are coming up, and as they do that, um, I would just encourage you as we think about worship and what it really means to worship, this is also an act of worship to God. It's acknowledging who God is and what God has done, so prepare your hearts and minds. Fix your heart on who Jesus is. Ask if there's anything in you right now that's going to put you before God that he takes care of that.